Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. So in the uh, mid-80s, so I I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and uh, came out pretty young for the time, came out at about 15 uh, which uh, was 1981, and uh, spent the uh, early part of the 80s um, trying to figure out who I was, uh, you know, as a human being, but as a gay man, um, and going to going to bars. Um, the drinking age was 18 when I was a, a kid in, in New York, and so with the worst fake ID that's ever existed, I was going to gay bars at 15, 16 years old. Um, you know, a big part of my story and what, what got me into, into treatment and eventually into recovery, um, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And as I was figuring out who I was as a gay man, I had little to no boundaries around sex and sexuality and um, found myself in, in a lot of situations at 16, 17 years old with adults that I thought was a way to connect with folks. Um, uh, This was, I actually came out pre-HIV and that started to, we became more aware of it during uh, my my late adolescence. Um, So I was, I was drinking alcoholically when I look back uh, as a teenager. Um, I was also, eager to try any drug that was put in front of me. Um, and before I graduated from, from high school, I had done every drug I would do except for crystal meth um, in every way except for injecting. And that all came later. Um, managed to hold things, some semblance of together for a period of time. And throughout the 80s, started uh, drinking heavier and heavier, um, got more involved with drugs uh, and thought I could manage it. I found a, a uh, wonderful codependent who would clean me up and get me off to work in the morning um, and held him hostage in a relationship for a long time where, where he kept some semblance of normalcy looking outward. Um, when we were 25, uh, he had an aneurysm and died. And um, I found myself in this really difficult situation We've been involved with um, ACT UP and Queer Nation. I've always been an activist at heart. And because he died of an aneurysm, I actually had friends who said, well, it's not like he died of AIDS. It's not a big deal. And there wasn't a way. And and my family, even though I had come out, was not very uh, supportive um, of of me being gay or my relationship. Um, I grew up in a big Irish Catholic family. Um, and, and I had pulled away from them, um, you know, unfortunately in lots of ways, um, my, my father had real problems with, uh, my sexuality. Um, and I allowed that to, uh, push me away from other family members who would have been supportive during a time when, when I thought they would just agree with him. Um, so, uh, after, after Bobby died, I, I went off the deep end and spent, um, quite a few years just in blackout using, I always had multiple jobs in case I lost one and things got 
really bad for me. Uh, and I ended up um, in probably the most humbling thing that happens, moving back into my parents' house where I haven't lived since I was a teenager um, and getting drunk and high in my childhood bedroom, um, which was just so morally destructive. Um, and, and, you know, I was lost as who I was. Uh, managed to rack up a couple of uh, DWIs in New York um, and a very well-earned DWIs. And uh, I was watching the Larry King show one night and John Larroquette from Night Court was on and he was talking about uh, being in recovery. And it was the first time I had ever really heard someone talk about being in recovery. Uh, I had had a friend who clearly knew that I was an alcoholic who invited me to go to a meeting with her once a few years prior and she was telling her story. And I remember listening and just being appalled that she was sharing this information. Because I'm like, well, we all do this, but we just don't talk about it. You don't talk about waking up in someone else's house. You know, this is just not what you do. And um, so when I heard him talking about this, I thought there might be a solution. This was, you know, pre-internet. There were probably about 12 people on the internet. And um, I certainly was not one of them. And I think I had some, whether it was the Village Voice or uh, some magazine, LGBT magazine um, that was published at the time that had a little ad for Pride in the back of it. And I called the number and spoke with someone there. Um, my parents had been doing some research because they knew that I had a problem. Um, my father wanted me to go to a program that, that at the time was known as Father Martin's Ashley, a fantastic program now known as Ashley in Maryland. Um, uh, I wasn't going to go anywhere that my father suggested, um, uh, even though he was fitting, footing the bill for it. Um, but I, I was going to be contrary no matter what. Um, and one night after a horrible, horrible, drunken, screaming match, I found myself in the airport in Buffalo on my way to Minneapolis. Um, and got picked up by the van and taken out to 14400 Martin Drive in 1996, um, where I was about a third invested in what was going on. Um, I, I was glad to be away from what I thought the problem was. Um, I didn't use while I was in treatment. Um, there was a, a brand new program um, uh, that was extended care, I think it was called TCP, that was extended care or I forget the name of it, but um, that I stayed there for about uh, two or three months um, and then moved in with a couple of people that I had been in treatment with. They had moved out, moved into this apartment prior to me going there. It was, um, I was moving in with uh, two of the, the men I was in treatment and then um, a woman who I was in treatment with also moved in. They had all started using before I got there, which I did not know. Um, it was not, there was no structure to this. It was not a sober house. It was just a bunch of people moving who got along and treatment moving together. Um, I couldn't figure out why when we got to the house, they went in their bedrooms and shut their doors while I sat out in the living room wanting to connect with people. Um, so it wasn't long. I, I was going to meetings. I didn't have a car. I got a job in Uptown. I thought I was incredibly hip. I got a boyfriend right away um, because that was necessary um, uh, and I would go to meetings. I asked a guy to be my sponsor. I never talked to him again and I, I didn't stay sober. Um, I didn't have anything set up. I didn't, there were, there were plenty of, plenty of people willing to help plenty of things, uh, that were good for me to do. Um, but I, I didn't take advantage of them. I didn't, I didn't follow it. Um, 
We had another little treatment round, uh, ended up really on a very, very bad run with, with a friend that I had met in one of my treatments. Um, we ended up, uh, I like to say it, a, a very well-executed intervention by the Brooklyn Center Police Department. Um, and I entered treatment for the last time, hopefully. Um, I Each time in treatment, I became a little bit more willing. And I remember um, laying on the road in Brooklyn Center with my fingers interlaced behind my head, thinking, I'm done. I'm done. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to do everything that they tell me because I don't know what else to do. And if this doesn't work, um, then I give up. Then I give up. I was, I was hopeless and lost. And I'm grateful for that feeling every day because it put me in a position where I followed the directions as they came to me. Um, I always considered myself uh, different than everyone else. So I'd sit in a group and look around and say, well, I can't listen to what that person's saying because they're five years older. Or I can't listen to what that person's saying um, because they're, they're, I mean, because I didn't like their shoes. This is the kind of nonsense that would go through my head. So uh, after this final treatment, um, moved back to Minneapolis. Uh, I was um, working at Caribou Coffee at the Mall of America, uh, which I'll tell you, if you can work at the Mall of America and stay sober, you can do just about anything. Uh, I was living in Uptown at 33rd and Humboldt and uh, uh, taking multiple buses to get to work and going to meetings on a regular basis. I got a sponsor that I worked the steps with, um, who I continue to stay in touch with, who was my counselor at Pride in 1996 and in uh, 2001 became my sponsor. So my, my, my sober day is February 5th, 1999. Um, but I was in treatment for a very long time before I started to have to worry about getting a sponsor. Uh, I continued to stay involved. That was community was the biggest missing piece for me in my recovery. Um, I've learned and, and currently I work in treatment and our medical director here was talking about COVID and the unique challenges that COVID has created for people. Now, COVID is a disease that affects community that is cured in isolation, where addiction is a disease of isolation that's cured in community. And the two things being contrary have been a, a challenge for us. Um, I actually have a, a sponsee that I work with who I've never met except through, through Zoom meetings, um, who actually has never still has not been to an in-person meeting um, and is, is coming up on two years sober now, which is amazing. Um, but I got sober. I uh, worked the steps. I started getting sponsees, um, continued to show up for a job, decided that I wanted to give back in a way, um, was going to go to um, Hazelin for, for uh, their graduate program and open my store late. And Caribou Coffee, if you open your store late, you're fired immediately without any question. And so I lost my job. And part of my recovery was that uh, I don't take money from my family. So I found myself in a position where I couldn't do the graduate school that I wanted to do. And I didn't have a job and I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I had this little part-time job at the firm and Kelly was kind enough to let me work more hours so I could kind of pay bills. And I went to a meeting and talked about uh, what am I going to do? Um, because I have found that everything that I need in recovery, there's someone at a 12-step meeting who has an answer for me. Um, 
when I first got sober, I, I eventually worked up the nerve. I was an IV drug user. I was very sexually active. Um, I was certain that I was going to have HIV. Um, and I went to uh, the doctors um, on Lake and found out that I did not have HIV, but I had hepatitis C, which I knew nothing about. So went to a meeting, talked about it, had three or four people come up and who identified as having hepatitis C and said, here's what I did and here's the solution. Um, when I got fired, I went to, went to a meeting and said, this is what happened. I don't know what I'm going to do. And um, a guy came up to me who I had known on the sidelines of my life and said, I'm opening a, a LGBTQ sober house um, uh, in Minneapolis and I need someone to manage it. So I managed the St. Paul Sober Living House when it first opened. Um, for about a year and a half. Um, in that time, I started working in recovery because I, I couldn't go to grad school and everyone should be really grateful that I'm not a counselor because I'm not patient. Uh, so I've learned where my skills lie. Um, I started working for um, an intervention and family consulting group out of St. Paul. Spent about seven years doing that, really loved that work. Uh, and then I was recruited uh, to do some really great work with the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation around their merger. Um, I love working in treatment. I love treatment. Um, I love seeing that the light go off in people's faces. I love now at this, this stage of my career, and I, I left Hazel and Betty Ford about six and a half years ago to move out. Um, I'm CEO of the Harmony Foundation in Estes Park, Colorado. Um, where we do great work. We actually just had an article published last year about the wonderful work we're doing um, with LGBTQ folks um, and the way that we're integrating uh, people back into their life through outpatient services and a, a thriving alumni group. Um, but the thing that I found that I, I love, and I think this connects to my 12-step recovery and sponsorship, is in mentoring and coaching people professionally. And I've been doing more and more of that and seeing people grow into new roles and continue to, to, to flourish has, has enriched my life. Um, so I, I, this past February, I had 23 years of continuous sobriety. Um, I have made a ton of mistakes in my recovery. Um, I have, I'm grateful that I can make amends on a regular basis because it, it keeps me right with the world. Uh, I discovered a career that I love. Um, I made my relationship with my family healthy. Um, at 10 years sober, my mom passed away from multiple sclerosis. And because I was sober, I was able to be there um, at her bedside in, in New York um, when her life ended, which was a true gift. Um, I, I, I met a guy, I met a bunch of guys, but I met one guy that was really special. And uh, we got married 12 years ago um, after a couple of years of dating. And he moved out here with me and um, he, he balances me out really nicely where I am uh, pragmatic and, and straightforward. Um, he is uh, spiritually grounded. He's 25 years sober and uh, we met professionally. The funny thing about it is Peter, who is my husband, um, is from Long Island, grew up in Port Jeff, Long Island, Port Jefferson. And uh, Bobby, who had been um, my partner who, who died when we were younger, grew up about 15 miles from him in Lake Ronkonkoma. And Peter's father was actually Bob's gym teacher. So um, the world is very, very small and I think works in special ways to take care of people. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what brought me to today. Uh, I, I live a life that's got a lot of 
um, service focus. So I sit on a number of boards, uh, Terry and I, Terry Hayden from Pride Institute, and I both sit on the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers Board. Um, I sit on the TPAS, which is our National Alumni Association Board. Um, I work with restorative justice. Uh, as I mentioned, my, my final treatment, hopefully, um, really was launched because of a run-in with the law. And so I'm really mindful of helping people who are struggling, who find themselves on the wrong side of the law because um, of their addiction on their relationship with chemicals. So I want to do, I want to give back in that way and help them. Um, and and I, I, that's become a passion in my life. So it kind of brings us to today. Thanks, Jim. That's awesome. Um, I want to backtrack to the very beginning when you said you came out at 15, because that is like, I mean, that that's hard today. I can't imagine like in the eighties, what was that entire experience like? So I had a bunch of really cool friends um, and that helped. And I started with them and it was, you know, remember the eighties androgyny started to be a big thing in culture club and um, even Duran Duran, you know, it was, I was still a, a I was a preppy little kid, but I had a, I went to a very small school and being diverse um, was, was celebrated there. Uh, and that was helpful. There was a, a man who stayed a, a mentor and a father figure in my life, uh, uh, Wayne Chambers, who had been my English teacher in high school. And he was out in the early 80s. We, we knew that he was gay. And I remember him sitting down with me and saying, uh, in a very appropriate way and that it, it's okay to be who you are and it's okay to be attracted to boys at the time because I was a boy um, and to like them and to respond in a way that's going to uh, be good for you um, rather than be hurtful and that the knowledge that I didn't have to change who I was because I was gay, that that became a part of me, um, was really helpful for me in the long run. Um, it, it took me a while to understand a lot of what he was sharing with me. Um, but my coming out to my family was not, um, you know, it, it was not a, a warm, fuzzy moment. Uh, you know, my, my dad said some things that were uh, cruel at the time, but I think he was responding based on his life experience. And, you know, we all carry that in. We have a, a good relationship today. Um, I grew up in a big Irish Catholic family. And, um, you know, the, the two things that, weren't, that aren't a surprise in a big Irish Catholic family is that someone's gay and most of them are alcoholics. So um, my, dad, my dad did say when I came out, he said his response was, well, then you'll be a priest, um, which uh, was not my gig. That's not my path. So, um, you know, I, I look back at who I was when I was 15. And while there's things that I would recommend to, to that, that child to do differently, um, I was a pretty brave kid. And I'm proud of who I was as a kid, because um, being able to say, this is who I am. And if, if you're not going to be able to support me in a healthy way, um, I'm going to find that somewhere else. Unfortunately, the places where I found the support that I was looking for were in unhealthy relationships. Uh, it took a while for me to figure that out. Um, but I still give me, I, I give that kid credit for knowing that he could do that. And then I also want to talk about how, because in your story, you talked about two instances of grief. And I know you've probably maybe dabbled in more, but you, your first partner, Bobby, 
not sober experiencing grief. And then your mother, which I think you put really beautifully, um, that you were able to be there for her at the end of her life. What was the difference between the two from your perspective of dealing with grief using and dealing with grief, not using? Yeah. So I think dealing with grief using is not dealing with grief. That's what it was for me. Um, I put that on a shelf. This was, uh, there's a, a, a line from a movie that I love that I think is hysterically funny called girls will be girls. And there's a line where Varla Jean Merman says, um, feelings are like treasures. So bury them. And that's what I did. And it continued to hurt me, which I didn't know. I was probably five years sober. Um, and I was incredibly unhappy. Uh, I was, uh, chasing things that I thought, uh, would, make me feel good um, that weren't using, uh, but it wasn't far away from using for me. And I went to a program called Onsite in Tennessee and started looking at trauma and grief in my life. And at that point, with clinical support, I was able to address that grief um, and and to to walk through it, um, which I just avoided it in the past. Because I had done that work, um, when my mom died, uh, I was able to be to be present for it um, and not to hide from it. Um, you know, there there's a, a, a kind of a feeling in in American society. I think we do this more than anyone else. Uh, you know, we get people who come in and say, "What's your pain scale?" and everyone is a ten. Um, and we we've we've got this idea, and I think this this feeds. Uh, opiate addiction. Um, I think it feeds addiction in general. That that we should never be uncomfortable. That there that it's a bad thing to be sad or to grieve or to hurt. Um, if my body hurts, that's that's a good thing because it's telling me something is wrong, and I should get that addressed, not cover it up. If my if my soul hurts, um, that's okay. That that tells me that I'm a caring person who's connected to other people. Um, it can be difficult, but this this idea, and I chased this for for many years, this idea that we should all be laughing and gleeful all the time. You know, when we talk in in twelve step rooms about being happy, joyous, and free, I think I, I personally think happy is a terrible goal because it's almost never achievable. Because you know, if I'm happy because I achieved something or I'm in a relationship or something has come my way, I can compare myself to other people and lose that happiness pretty quickly. Um, I try to be grateful, joyous and free more than happy, joyous and free today. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that I run around welcoming grief, um, but I've, I've experienced a great deal of it. I, I, I have one of my dearest friends who, um, I was at Pride with in 96, who I continued running around with and getting into shenanigans with, who struggled with mental health on a level that I, I did not. Um, six years ago, took his life. And um, I remember finding that out and just sitting and crying. And my, my life before I got sober would have been, nope, don't cry, don't cry. It's it just pushed through this. Crying is bad. I had all those awful childhood memories that, you know, if you cry, it's not manly, you know, that pull yourself up by the bootstraps nonsense. And 
I really was so grateful that I was able to mourn this friend, like I did with my mom, like I've done with Bob, um, to be able to say, I am, I am so grateful to have had this experience to know these people and to know that I can love someone so much that losing them hurts. Um, that's a gift. It's a gift I would much rather risk hurting at some point and caring about someone than, than not. That's so inspiring, Jim. And I think an overarching theme um, in your story is resiliency. I mean, you kept getting knocked down, knocked down, knocked down and getting back up again. And I think, you know, when you were using, you got back up again, you know, just, you know, to feel better to use again in your sobriety, what gets you back up today when you get knocked down? Great question. And it's funny because we did um, my, my year end report uh, two years ago to our board and our donors at the Harmony Foundation was around resiliency. Um, and certainly the last two years have, have made us all either get very good with being resilient or just to struggle throughout the world. Um, we, we had not only did COVID affect the way we deliver services and how we interact as human beings. Um, I am an extrovert. My husband is an introvert. I, I, gain energy by travel and being around people and haven't been able to do that for almost two years. It just started that up again this past year. Uh, a year and a half ago, we had to evacuate this entire facility. It was filled with clients and staff and I had to, because we were surrounded by fire. And to be able to do that and be creative, um, you know, I, I think what keeps me going is, is the knowledge that things will be okay. Um, I'm not, you know, growing up Irish Catholic, I, I, I push back a lot about around organized religion and things like that, but I'm a, I'm a very spiritual guy. And I, I believe strongly in a higher power that has my back and that things will be okay. Uh, they may well not be the way I want them to be, but they'll be okay. So I, I lean on that a lot. Um, it's also incredibly important to me to be of service to other people, to know that when someone needs help, um, there's someone here reaching out, that when they reach out, my the hand will be there. And when I'm struggling with things, I look to that. Um, not, not as a comparison of, you know, my life is, is anything more than anyone else's, but that I get the opportunity to be there for someone else. And I think that in times that are incredibly difficult, um, whether I'm facing illness or dealing with grief or stressed out or angry, uh, I look to that. I look in those moments and say, okay, if I'm feeling this way, other people might be also. And as I, I talked about earlier, you know, the answers for me have always come from other people. Uh, I, I pretty much always have the wrong answer for me. That That's a, that's a, you know, in any situation, I can come up with the wrong solution. Um, I heard someone say, I thought this was funny in a meeting the other day, that their family had a problem for every solution. And that's kind of how I am. I can, I can think my way really bad places. But if I go to other people and say, hey, here's what's going on in my life. What do you think? Um, I, I get refocused. I get moved back. So I think the way I'm resilient is by, by being of service, by being there for other people. That's awesome. I think the best piece of advice that I've ever been given um, was from my therapist. And I remember telling them like a problem and a thing I was going through. 
And they basically looked at me and they're like, oh yeah, you just got to wallow. Like, don't do anything. Just feel it for like two days. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Wallow? Like I'm paying you to make me feel better. Why are you not making me feel better? But I think that's something that I've kind of heard you kind of say in one way or the other, because you're absolutely right. We are in a society and especially with <laughs> social media and constant dopamine rushes and X, Y, and Z. I'm just trying to feel good. Um, and so I think that that's really, really great advice. Um, what have you noticed change in the recovery field in like the last like couple of years with COVID, um, X, Y, and Z? Well, so I, I think we see people coming to treatment because COVID, the, the cure for COVID was isolation. And so many people, and I mean, I'm, I'm seeing space in both of your homes right now. You know, on this call, most people moved home and, and started working from home. And I know that would have been very dangerous for me in, in active using, even in recovery, to just be at home and not interact. I was grateful that I actually got to come to work. I had to come to work every day because we had clients here. Um, we started to see people coming in with their disease progressed further than it had been. Uh, and I think that they weren't getting those mini interventions of, you know, a coworker or HR saying, Jim, we appreciate the great job you're doing. I have to tell you that people have noticed that you smell like alcohol when you come to work. Um, that uh, quality of work changed because in, in active using, I probably would have gotten up at about four o'clock in the morning, done my job until about one o'clock and then started using uh, and then completely useless by, well, 105 for me if I started at one o'clock because uh, I, went, I went hard and fast with crystal meth. Um, so I think we're seeing people who, who are struggling more. I think that families aren't able to connect as much and some of the solution that has been out there for people through the 12-step fellowship uh, has been more difficult to access. Um, meetings are, are great and the backbone of, of my recovery, but it's, it's the fellowship that fleshes everything out. Uh, it's the meeting after the meeting for me. And I have missed that uh, in the last two years. I've missed the opportunity to go and eat cold fries with people and laugh and talk about things um, because that connection uh, was key for my recovery. We're, you know, we're seeing different drugs, of course. There's always going to be fluctuations in drugs. There's always going to be, you know, we'll be addressing fentanyl, and then after fentanyl, something else will come. And um, a lot of attention is going to opioids right now um, because they're killing lots of people. But, you know, where I think the opiate deaths are about 110,000 opiate overdoses in the last year, there's still 140,000 people that are dying every year from alcoholism. And, you know, that continues to be a major killer. And I, I, I encourage my, my peers in, in treatment to not lose focus on that, that, you know, that while we look at, just like we did with uh, uh, crystal meth and then moved to opiates and now it's fentanyl with a little bit more crystal meth seems to be on the rise again. Uh, the alcohol stays there nice and steady in that. So we still see most of our people come in with alcohol as a primary primary drug of choice. Um, and then the other ones kind of float in there. The, the, the biggest hard, hardest part of this, um, Luke, to, to go back to your question, I think is how do you create community for people in a time when it's still dangerous 
can be dangerous to get together. Um, we, we've had a great couple of months uh, COVID-wise in Colorado on um, this past weekend. Uh, Boulder County went to high alert and Larimer County went to immediate alert. So all, things that we had planned to bring people together and be indoors in spaces, we're now looking at how we can do those outdoors again and, and move them back, but still keep people coming together. And people aren't working. We need people to come back to work. Uh, so that, that's also really challenging. Um, I'm not sure uh, how people are, are able to do it. Um, we've run into problems. So Estes Park, where Harmony is, which is a, a summer resort town, we let, now it's not as, as bad this year, but last year, the primary employees for the season in Estes Park are foreign workers um, who come in on J-1 visas. Obviously, they couldn't come in two years ago. For some reason, the big connections for Estes Park resorts um, come from the Ukraine. So this year... It's, it's a combination of COVID and the Ukraine. Last year, there were resorts in town that were paying $40 an hour for housekeepers um, because they just couldn't hire. And you know, I, I can't blame the housekeepers that work for us who said, we need to go and take these jobs because we can't give this money up. Um, you know, and we're never going to be able, we're a nonprofit. So we're, you know, we, we, we pay competitively and we, we take care of our folks. We've got a great benefits program, but we're never going to be able to compete on a $40 an hour level for housekeepers um, and keep treatment affordable for clients. So um, those have been the big things. It's really around the, the level of care that people need um, and, and, and getting staff in to take care of folks. Well, Jim, I really appreciated your perspective. I think I took a lot of tidbits that I'll even, you know, take back into my life, try and work in there. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. Happy to. And, you know, again, Pride's a great program. I'm really grateful that you guys are there. Um, we, we give your name out a lot to folks when they're coming in um, who don't have that community to help them. And, uh, you know, keep doing, keep fighting the great fight and doing the great work. Appreciate what you do. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.